In this episode of the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast, I'm super excited to welcome on Dr. Kelly Sturette. If you haven't heard of Kelly Sturette before, he is a coach, physical therapist, author, and speaker. Him and his wife, Juliet, have co-founded the company, The Ready State. The Ready State began as Mobility Wad in 2008 and has gone on to revolutionize the field of performance therapy and self-care. Kelly received his Doctor of Physical Therapy degree in 2007. Kelly's clients include professional athletes in the NFL, NBA, NHL, and MLB. He also works with Olympic gold medalists, Tour de France cyclists, world and national record-holding Olympic lifting and power athletes, CrossFit game medalists, ballet dancers, military personnel, and competitive age division athletes. He is the author of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestseller, Becoming a Supple Leopard and Ready to Run. He is also co-author with Julia of the Wall Street Journal bestseller, Deskbound. His latest book, Waterman 2.0, offers water sport athletes a comprehensive guide to optimized movement and pain-free performance. Kelly and his work have been featured on 60 Minutes, The View, The Joe Rogan Experience, CBS Sports, Outside Magazine, Men's Health, Men's Journal, dozens and dozens of podcasts, magazines, books, including Tim Ferriss' 4-Hour Body and Tools of Titans, and now, of course, the Brown Body Health and Fitness Podcast. On top of co-founding The Ready State, Kelly and Julia also started San Francisco CrossFit and Stand Up Kids together. Founded in 2005, San Francisco CrossFit was the 21st CrossFit affiliate in the world, and Stand Up Kids is a nonprofit dedicated to combating kids' sedentary lifestyles by bringing standing and moving desks to low-income public schools. To date, Stand Up Kids has converted 95,000 kids from sitting to standing. Earlier in their careers, Kelly and Julia also co-founded a kayaking camp for children with HIV called Liquid. In his athletic career, Kelly paddled whitewater slalom canoe on the U.S. canoe and kayak teams. He led the men's whitewater rafting team to two national titles and competed in two world championships. In his free time, Kelly likes to spend time with his wife, Julia, and their two daughters, Georgia and Caroline. He also likes to mountain bike, paddle, and sauna, and he claims to tolerate the ice bath, but his wife says that he actually enjoys that too. Clearly, Dr. Sturette needs to learn what the definition of a day off is, right? The guy has done everything, it seems. He has such an incredible resume, and we're super excited to have him on the podcast with us today. Now, before we get to the episode, we're going to have a quick word from one of our sponsors. Dr. Sturette, welcome to the show. Really excited to have you on today, man. I can't wait to nerd out. <laughs> so for people who haven't heard of Supple Leopard or Deskbound or any of your amazing titles or The Ready State, could you kind of share a little bit with us about yourself, your company and everything that you guys do? Yeah, you know, um, I'm a classically trained physio. So went through a heavy Maitland Australian approach manual school here in California. And at the same time, I was at the end of a career of being a professional athlete. I was a professional paddler. I paddled on the U.S. canoe and kayak team. Paddled myself right off the U.S. canoe and kayak team with a brachial plexus injury and a spinal cord injury. Lo and behold, uh, 
I just, just really had this moment of Satori that I need to go to PT school. And while I was at PT school, I remember first having this feeling that, man, this language has nothing to do with the language of how athletes move or train. They're so far removed from the day-to-day. It's like uh, physio was really about triage and not about performance. You know, it's hard to think back into the early 2000s and appreciate because it seems such, such like it's so interconnected now, but it wasn't at all. Such sort of discrete uh, you know, fields. <clears throat> and physio at the time, I think, had really been struggling or transitioning consciously to becoming evidence-based, really trying to make ourselves you know, relevant and valid in the medical field. And we had really turned our backs on our movement traditions. And, and I don't know if it was conscious or, or blatant, but it was where we needed to go to be taken seriously by the medical establishment, by, the, by the, the, the insurance reimbursement system, the whole thing. Like We were like, we have to be close to the hospital. But in so doing, we completely turned away from movement traditions, strength conditioning, trainers, coaches. And what we saw was this, this widening gap. At the same time that that was happening, the internet was starting. Where suddenly we were seeing the explosion of modern industrial fitness. And when I was a first year physio, I discovered this thing called CrossFit on the internet. And you have to understand CrossFit back then is very different than it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we, I discovered was here was a formal language of kettlebells, barbells, Olympic lifting, gymnastics, running technique, rowing, swimming. And I realized that even as a national level athlete, as a national champion athlete, I had huge deficiencies in my understanding of training systems. So all of a sudden I get into CrossFit and love this training modality. Um, And then I'm trying to reconcile that with being a first year physio and really trying to figure out how these roots are going together. So my second year of physio school, I started a gym and I, I, my first year of physio school, I had a baby second year of physio school. I started a full-time gym and everyone knows that that's obviously what you do in physio school. It's so much easier. <laughs> and, um, I actually got pulled into the office and they were like, are you crazy? Like, are you like, you're going to die. And I was like, well, it'll be on me. It's my death. So, um, but what ended up happening, I started running a whole lot of people through formal strength conditioning, not BOSU ball, cable crossovers, functional training, but the legit language of squatting and deadlifting and in Olympic lifts and swinging kettlebells and being responsible for training energy systems. And something I was like, wait a minute, I'm seeing that a lot of people have really incomplete positioning, but they're training, you know, no matter what. And, and they may or may not have pain while they're training, but they, man, their positioning suck. But I remember even getting on the phone with <clears throat> the American Physical Therapy, uh, the California CAPTA, and asking them, I'm like, hey, can I, can I just mobilize, use my PT powers to change someone's wellness position? Because until that time, believe it or not, no one was using mobilizations. No one was using hip quadrant to improve the power of athletes. That wasn't happening. We might do a hip quadrant to restore some range of motion and a painful hip or to clear a hip, but we weren't necessarily thinking, hey, I'll do this rib screw to improve thoracic extension so that I can, my athletes can snatch better, right? No one was doing sort of these mobilizations to improve power, improve output, improve wattage and people who didn't have pain. And suddenly I also realized that I had this great diagnostic tool that I was able to understand a little bit of, hey, what's going on? So, you know, people are having incomplete start positions, incomplete finish positions. 
And I was starting to build this kind of connection between sometimes when people were having pain, they were having pain in a movement. And that when I addressed their and restored their capacity to move, we got pain mitigation, pain attenuation, pain, you know, people became uh, more durable and more effective and we got pain dealt with in the, in the side. And what I really started to move away from was, man, pain is the wrong conversation. You know, people are showing up and training with pain. Kids have pain. Pain is a common conversation. What can we look at besides pain or no pain? And that really started to shape my conversation. So I run this course. Uh, I started running a course. We started putting, you know, content on the internet in 2010. The iPhone didn't even have a video camera then. And, you know, suddenly what we realized is that there was a big gap in understanding sort of what the physiology is saying, how humans are supposed to move. And, and don't get me wrong, like, oh, movement is good. That's horse crap when you're trying to clean and jerk a world record. It's horse crap if you're trying to swim fastest. And what we realized is that part of our language and choices that we were making about best case physiology had to hold true under load and speed. Under, under the tenets of high performance. And there was this real dissociation between at low loads, low speeds, it probably doesn't matter as much, right? And getting people out of pain and triaging them in sort of traditional physio was one thing, but we were turning around and really creating this, this what we call performance therapy model, which is trying to understand the biosocial components to performance, talking about nutrition, talking about sleep, talking about deregulation, restoration, the things we always kind of give voice to, or at least lip service to. But if you have 30 minutes to work with someone, I guarantee you, your, your treatment will be incomplete because you only have 30 minutes to work with someone once a week, once every other week. So it doesn't matter what, how intentioned physios are, in our traditional model where we have a carpeted floor and a hung ceiling, we're seeing someone in this, we cannot possibly return people to full power, return them to normative range, train them. That's gotta be in a different situation, different setting. So we started spending more and more time in gyms, more and more time in high performance environments. And pretty soon we're with every branch of the government, we're with every branch of the military, we're with you know, as many different college teams, athletic teams, professional sports, Olympians, choose a high performance environment. And really we started to aggregate our thinking, my thinking into a model that helped us explain why we were moving the way we're moving, helping us predict future movement compensations and movement patterning and breakdowns in force. And more importantly, a language, a central language that allowed us to link between what coaches were doing, the development of the person from childhood all up to the Olympics and being able to communicate that to physicians and physio. So that's what we've been working on for the last 15 years. That's an incredible journey and overall a very effective process that you just outlined because one, you're looking at the patient holistically, right? You're looking at every factor that influences their overall current state. So maybe they're not moving well, poor quality of movement, but maybe that's because they slept three hours last night. Maybe it's because, you know, they had a long day at work or long day at school, they're stressed, they're anxious, you know, waiting for test scores to come back or just got fired from their job, whatever it is right? A lot of people have other things going on. And I think it's important to consider how that impacts the patient that you're seeing for the 30 minute to 60 minute treatment session that you get with them. And I also like how you touched on the overlap of PT with strength and conditioning, because that's something that we traditionally do not see in PT. I think PT is kind of notoriously known in some cases for underloading patients, right? We are very good with hands-on skills, hands-on techniques, 
And then when it comes time to give exercises to patients, you know, we fall back to these very basic stereotypical flow sheets and different things that are not customized, they're not individualized, and they're not uniquely suited to the patient's specific needs. So for example, if I have a patient who works a job in construction and has to regularly lift up to 100 pounds, then I better have weights to 100 pounds in my clinic, because if not, how am I going to know that he's safe to go back to work? Uh, And just getting back to that overlap between what we're here for to reduce pain and improve quality of movement, but also make sure that quality holds up in the specific tasks and demands that a patient has to do, whether that be in life or in sporting activity. And that's something that is much easier said than done. You know, everyone can, you know, watch sports and pick out different like movements and stuff, but it's a lot harder to develop specific training approaches for those different positions, right? So someone might be able to dissociate their hip movement from their, so basically dissociate lower body movement from upper body movement for those who um, haven't heard that term before, uh, really well in like a side plank, but maybe you put them on a baseball mound and you ask them to pitch and, you know, there's a much more limited ability to isolate hip movement from lower back movement. And now we have a whole nother thing that comes up of how can we train this movement pattern in that position specifically. Uh, And I think that's where that PT and strength and conditioning overlap really shines. And I love that approach that you guys have uh, with addressing it. If you're going to be a doctor level person in musculoskeletal care, that means if you don't speak Pilates fluently, if you don't speak yoga, if you can't instruct someone with a basic barbell or dumbbells or kettlebells or really understand how we're going to go then train this person, you know, what we see is we have low level corrective exercises, which oftentimes help to desensitize a problem, help to, you know, get, you know, we'll call it non-threatening input into the system, but, you know, dissociating the hip from lumbar, even that language has nothing to do with strength conditioning. Can you, what are the fundamentals of human function? You know, can you squat? Can you squat with your torso upright? Can you squat in a split stance? Can you, can you pick something up off the ground? Can you put it over your head? These are the, the formal language of human movement is strength and conditioning. And so what we see is that there's this association where we've taken strength and conditioning languages in physio and made it into like Esperanto, like a, like a correlate, you know, classic Greek language that again, once has nothing to do. The other thing is three sets of 10. Yeah, that works great for a second. Then what? And how do you progress that? So people don't have hyper-specific, like unique needs. The body, the hip extends, it flexes, it rotates. What are you doing to expose those things? And what we've done is traditionally said, well, you're out of pain and functional enough, move on. And that's okay. That may be the role of physio today is to come in, help someone de-threaten, get them independent, and then kick them out. Because that's what our reimbursement system is based on. So right now we're still having a disingenuous conversation about about the nature of how we're going to get paid and how long we can manage that. If you come in for a painful shoulder, but you don't have full overhead, you don't have full internal rotation, you don't have any extension, I haven't led you to loading, but now your shoulder doesn't hurt anymore, but you can do your bra. Are you ready to go? Have I returned that? Are you just within normal limits? And I've said, hey, look, you're not going to bleed out on my table today. Now we're done. So what you see is, we don't have a template for 
in returning people to full function. What we say is it's good enough and that's apologetics, which is just saying that, oh, because it's good enough means, hey, I'm not getting paid for it. I'm not set up for it. I need to see you three to five times a week. People forget that the original Maitland model of Austra uh, you know, the Australian physio was I would see a patient three to five times a week and you would ask them, how did you feel the first 20 minutes after the session? How did you feel the next morning when you woke up? How did you feel after loading? You, you know, think about your return to sport in ACL. In Kaiser, the system, you may see a, pay, a, a, a physio three times and then be stuck in a class where you scoot around on a scooter because they're not set up for it. You think honestly that a three visit session with, an, with a physio for an ACL reconstruction is, is complete? Did you see that person under metabolic load? What happened under hard, hard cardiorespiratory demand? What happened when you added speed load to that thing? No way, no way. So let's, let's start to ask, maybe we should need to treat physio like it's a hospital course and all we're trying to do is get you out of pain. But that pain is the low bar and it has nothing to do with someone's function. So if you have an Achilles tendinopathy, but your tendinopathy is not painful anymore, is that Achilles healed? No, it's not. And how do you prevent that? So, you know, ex exactly what you're saying is when we start putting the emphasis back on performance, as in wattage, output, biomotor expression, then you have to give a crap about sleep and stress and nutrition and warm up and cool down because that is the language of performance. And when we start putting pain into that same bucket, it's just information. If we're gonna go around and physios and be like, pain does not mean trauma, doesn't mean tissue damage, right? It's just information. It's just your, your body's, you know, your brain's request for change. Well, let's acknowledge it for what it is. And just the same way that someone comes in and can't pick something up off the ground with decent mechanics, right? And when I say decent mechanics, mechanics that translate, mechanics that scale, look, anyone can have, you can be missing all your hip function. You can't flex your knee to your chest and you can still pick something up off the ground. But don't pretend that that is the best way to do that. But what we can do is dissociate, hey, this is really poor technique and poor expression of the human, but you may or may not ever get injured here. Like we can say that, or this may or may not ever cause pain, but you are gonna suck and you'll never be on the Olympic mound. And I haven't done anything to improve your function here. I've just told you, well, that's as good as we can and our visits up, right? So, you know, really what we need to be doing is reaching back and working in the populations, the places where people are getting their healthcare information, which is the gym, the internet, it's the, the trainer at, you know, at the YMCA. And instead, what we do is we see this sort of difference of small things. We, as physios, we will cut each other to death on the internet about some long word or posture or some bullshit. Meanwhile, we are becoming irrelevant as a field. So your choice about how you're going to have to categorize this. We need to have outpatient orthopedic clinics where we can help triage people, but then we're going to have to follow along if we want to fully live up to the potential of our training, which is really immense, physio training makes the best coaches on the planet. 100% agree with you because there's such a deep dive into human anatomy and biomechanics and so many other factors that go into the PT schooling. I also love your point about pain, how it's a piece, but it shouldn't be put in the same bucket as everything else we're trying to look at here. Because pain is part of that process, right? You mentioned uh, Achilles rehab, right? If I have someone with Achilles tendonitis, I need to load the tendon. 
that thing's going to suck. It's going to be painful to do these prolonged, heavy, isometric and eccentric holds. It's not going to be fun. It's going to be painful, but that pain is essential in order to grow. So if I'm measuring progress based on pain alone, well, they're going to be in more pain after the session's done than when they came in. So does that mean they're getting worse, not better? Or does that mean that their body is slowly adapting to the load that we're putting on it? Because you can't remake the human body without pain. You're both the marble and the sculptor at the same time. I love that. You know, if I dropped in, I work with some really talented athletes. And if I dropped in, one of the athletes I get to work with is a woman named Kate Courtney. She's a world champion mountain biker. And if I dropped into her brain in the middle of a World Cup race on a mountain bike, I would perish. I would just burn up and die. The amount of suffering and pain she's in so that can't be our only metric. And look, we, we want, if your pain is so bad that you can now, here's the naggy model. You can no longer occupy your role in society. You can't do your job. This is a medical emergency. We're having a different conversation now, right? This is, you, you can't go to school as a person. Now we're, this, we're playing a different game. And our game is we need to figure out what are the levers here where we can begin to change and help you modulate or get your brain less sensitized. And that may be sleep. You know, I, there are some really well-known physios who gave me a lot of shit on the internet for hammering on sleep um, because they didn't think it was important. Nah, nah, sleep and chronic pain. And I was like, what? So you think that I cannot sleep and I can go win a world championship? That's why I became obsessed with sleep. And it turns out, of course, later on, those physios are like, yes, we have to look at sleep. And, you know, and I'm like, well, if you had come from a performance background, you would have known you can't win a world championship if your guys don't sleep, if your women don't sleep. So, you know, what we need to do is a better synthesis and integration. And ultimately, we're looking for sort of a unified field theory here, or what E.O. Wilson would call resilience, where I can take and understand what are the best, best practices, good practices for human beings, and reconcile with that with the building blocks of what I should be teaching in the clinic. And look, all roads lead to Rome, but not all roads are equal to Rome. And we work in a language of progression and regression. So if we're going to look at how well you look, I can sideline you and look at your lumbar instability all day long, but ultimately I'm going to get you to box squat to a chair where I can see if you have, you know, lumbar pelvic control, is your back a, a sloppy mess? Doesn't mean that that sloppy mess technique is going to cause pain. It certainly means that you're going to be crappy under any kind of load and you're going to default and have a lot of movement error and a lot of variability in your movement. And you're not going to have to be able to perform complex movements under speed and load, but this is a place to start. So now we're suddenly doing very slow tempo box squats where someone can begin to rebuild tolerance. Once we're putting someone into this position where we're working on a box squat, for example, this can be progressed infinitely. I can add a load into a front squat. I can add a load into a back squat. I can challenge this with speed. I can challenge this with cardiovascular demand and metabolic demand. I can make it do 20 reps. I can make it do 50 reps. And suddenly we have a really excellent idea. Here's a central skill that we believe is foundational to being a human, lowering yourself to the ground, picking something up. And then we can really say, hey, is this skill stable under these different conditions? So instead of using a correlate or a, an associated movement, let's regress and progress the original movement. Unless someone can't do that, then we're going to start bridging. And then we're going to start doing something else. Then we're going to, but ultimately the goal is to get them back into a real movement language 
and squatting is a part of this real movement language. It's basically the formal movement language. Then you can change your foot position and change your torso angle, but we can infinitely progress that, that idea. So ultimately, again, if I'm seeing you and think about the type one error in this thinking, takes me six weeks to be evaluated by a physical therapist, sometimes in San Francisco, because they're so impacted. I get 45 minutes in that evaluation. Then it's two weeks for a follow-up and that's 30 minutes. What am I going to get done in eight weeks? That is a 45 minute session and a 30 minute session where I'm trying to untangle someone's complex movement behavior, complex environmental behavior. That's horseshit. And let's stop pretending that we can deliver the kind of care we want in that situation because we can't. Oh, you're capped out at three visits? What am I going to do in triage in this three visits? So let's stop pretending that we can have the kind of interventions in people's lives in those visits without just giving a massive supplementation and actually pointing to someone else. So we're going to have to become the director of someone and we're going to have to put them into a, an environment where they can get lifestyle coaching and environmental coaching and movement coaching and nutrition coaching. So we may need to reimagine where the role of physio is if we're not the point of care, we're the director of the whole sort of health movement system. Yeah, I like that a lot. That makes a lot of sense because after all, sideline clamshells never changed anyone's life, right? We have to get back to that functional <laughs> pattern. And it, it does, it does. <laughs> if you're so low, you've just gotten out of surgery and we need to move the tissue, right? If, that, right. if that's what, if clamshells change your life, we have, you are so deconditioned or so <laughs> cute that that's the appropriate exercise, but let's stop pretending that that prevents ACL injuries. Stop it. Yeah, for sure. You have to get into functional patterns. And I like that you kind of skip over that isolated step and go right to the functional pattern because that's, what's going to expose someone's weakness. You know, a isometric contraction quad is not going to show you someone's quad strength and control in a knee over toe position. And if they can't control it in a knee over toe, deep knee bend position, then they're more at risk for ACL tear. But you're not going to pick that up on an isometric quad strength, uh, strength test. So what is that telling you? It's not serving you any purpose. It's not giving you any insight based on that athlete's injury risk. So I love the focus on function. Is that something that you've kind of noticed with, um, you, you have that background with the book Supple Leopard. I'm pretty sure everyone's heard of it before. If not, you need to go check it out because it's one of the most comprehensive books you'll ever see about managing and treating your own pain, condition, movement limitations. Um, have, how is the background of Supple Leopard up to where you are today in the ready state, kind of managing patient care and being the director, so to speak, how has that approach changed and shifted and evolved over time? Well, first of all, I feel like um, people misunderstood Supple Leopard a little bit in terms of like the first three-fourths of the book are how to think about classic strength and conditioning movement as a formal diagnostic language and how to predict movement compensation. So well, I'll say that we inherited a language from the masters in front of me, talking about Mulligan, you know, um, you know, McGill, like we don't say movement fault anymore. That's an old, old language. We don't say brace. That's an old language. So we, we inherited that language. And so some of the language has been updated a little bit. Um, but really what we're beginning to try to say is um, we are looking at sort of we use a model I call the I3 model, and it came out of a, um, 
sort of socio sociologist who looked at complex movement or complex systems theory. His name's Charles Perrow. And not all incidents are accidents. And what I really started to realize is that there's this relationship between, you know, the lagging indicators of pain, um, numbness and tingling, swelling, decreased loss of force production, decreased, you know, output. But those things don't necessarily mean I'm injured at all. And so that injury ends up being that model where I'm like, hey, this is a medical emergency. We have either a red flag, we have a clear mechanism of injury, or we have pain that's so bad you need to go get medical help. Everything else is in the domain of an incident level problem, which is actually just a normative aspect of being a human being. So what's on the other side of sort of an incident problem? Like if I go for a long run and my knee hurts, am I injured? No, my knee hurts from going a long run. Maybe I overdid it. Maybe I'm sensitive. Maybe I'm dehydrated. Maybe I'm just stiff, right? But no one goes and seeks a physical therapist's help for that. You know, that, that's so naive. Like if I go around the street and be like, do you have pain? Are you being treated by a physical therapist? No. Well, who's treating it? No one is treating it. No one's talking about it. No one's managing. That person's managing it with bourbon and THC and ibuprofen and opiates. They're doing whatever they can to just help them manage themselves. On the other side of this is something we can't control, which is we can improve people's normative mechanics or incomplete mechanics. So don't pretend that if someone doesn't have full shoulder flexion and the rotational stability components to that, that they're going to be effective swimmers. Right. So what we can say is, well, it's not my job to manage that or I don't get paid to manage that or I don't know how to improve that position in here in the clinic. But as long as it's not painful, it must not be a problem. But meanwhile, that person's running around with an ineffective movement solution and a, compens a, a compensatory pattern, which begins to challenge tissues in a different way than their best physiology. So stop saying it like all oh, movement is equal. It is not equal. If I take away your rotator cuff function, you're going to rely on it. You're going to solve that problem because you're a human being. Whether that causes pain or not is irrelevant. That's a crappy motor solution where you're shutting down the promise and performance of human physiology. But again, maybe I just don't have the time or the place. This is not a physio problem. This is a system problem. This is an organization problem. I want to be very clear. We're doing the best we can, completely handcuffed and completely hamstrung. So what we've tried to do is say, hey, look, who owns this problem now? It's the person. So there's a lot of what I believe to be unskilled care that can easily be taught to someone. And I want the physio to handle the complex problem, the complex management, the complex injury, the complex sensitization. That's skilled care. Someone coming in with stiff quads, right, and poor movement technique that's something that should be handled somewhere else, right? Like if I bring your knee to your chest and it's not a bony block, but you haven't even tried to improve your hip flexion and you're stuck at 90, why didn't you know that that was a problem in your movement language? And now we're starting to appreciate, ah, here's the hole that we've created for ourselves. We've told physio, we told non-physio trainers and coaches that they can't touch people, they can't assess people, that's a complicated thing, but keep training people. Meanwhile, those people are not, they're, they're the, they are talking about nutrition and, and sleep and stress and all these other things, but they're not looking at the roots and the components of the movements they're teaching. So if a coach doesn't identify that someone's missing hip flexion, that's a huge ding for me on the coach. 
And so what I want to do is expand this Venn diagram where there's going to be some overlap that we're going to, as physio professionals, we're going to have to hand over and say, yes, you need to look at position and positional restoration. You may not be doing it manually yourself because you don't have the skills, but we have these techniques that give us 80 or 90% effectiveness. And I don't need a skilled person in there. I don't need to have a licensed person between someone and improving their, their mechanics. It just doesn't work. And we started to learn that in things like the military where on an aircraft carrier, there's one physical therapist and 500 people. And like, well, how's that gonna go? How's that one physical therapist gonna manage the musculoskeletal conditions of 500 people in war condition, conditions? It doesn't happen. And so we have to think differently about the problem. And if we can improve that position and mechanic, then all of a sudden, you know, maybe they don't have pain, maybe their performance is better, maybe they can be more durable because they just have better access to physiology. So Supple Leopard, the back half of that book are what I call position transfer exercises. And I was a, a little bit ahead of the curve. And I don't think the physio, because we weren't working in these high performance environments, they didn't understand what I was doing a little bit. And, you know, I can only explain it so well in 500 pages. The idea here is at some point, we don't look at corrective exercises. We look at, you should be doing the squats. Here are a bunch of position transfer exercises, which by the way, mobilizations, what I tried to do is take every mobilization that I learned as a physio and try to translate it into something that a person could do themselves, right? With good effectiveness and good safety. And suddenly we had sort of a more cogent language that allowed us to then drop into Pilates, into yoga, Olympic lifting, track and field and apply the model around. So are we paying more attention to breathing and breath volume now? Yes. Are we teaching the squat a little bit differently? Yes. Um, but you know, have we changed the language away from bracing to organizing? Yes. Right. So there are some things that have evolved, but um, only because I reserve the right to continue to get better and refine my thinking because I'm still working. And Supple Leopard is 10 years old now. Next, next year, it's 10 years old. So, you know, we're and we were already writing it, you know, in 2022 or 10 years ago. So, you know, keep in mind that was the first crack at trying to unify this movement theory and movement field. And that's why that book still holds up today, because it's really rooted in what the actual function of humans should be. If you don't power clean or muscle snatch or do pull-ups, you're going to be lost. Yeah, for sure. I love the model that you've presented and how it applies to so many different individuals, but this really speaks volumes to the importance of education because a lot of people don't understand their body, right? It doesn't come with the owner's manual. Oh, yes. So no. if you as a physical therapist or any healthcare provider for that matter, have a patient come in, explain things to them, explain the condition, exp explain the diagnosis, the prognosis, explain what they should be doing very clearly in terms that they understand, you know, don't talk with the 10,000 foot medical jargon, explain it in simple terms, use things like duct tape and WD-40, use things that people relate to. And if you can do that and get them to buy in on routine exercises and things at home to manage the con their condition, they're going to get better. They're going to improve. And it doesn't have to be the best exercise. You mentioned this before, that we spend a lot of time arguing online over stuff, right? We're arguing over sand in the jar, and we're not focusing on the rocks. I don't care if the Spanish squat is a better exercise for quad loading than a forward lunge. My patient can do a forward lunge at home. My patient can't do a Spanish squat at home. So I'm going to give them what they can do. 
It's going to load their quads. It's going to load their anterior knee. It's going to get done what I need to get done. And I don't care if it's 5% less effective or something like that from some study. I care about if my patient can do it, if it's safe, and if it's going to help them in the long run, if it's going to make them better. And as you've said, we need to focus more on that stuff, giving people tools in the toolbox to manage their own conditions, as opposed to being a constant source for treating pain, treating pain, treating pain, and not addressing the most underlying factors that attribute or contribute to their pain. You know, what you'll see is people like Adam Meekins um, railing against people coming in, laying on a table and someone pushing on them and then going out. And I completely agree. Um, we see manual therapy, which has been demonized, maybe become less demonized because it's very, it was in vogue to demonize. But if the reason we were doing manual therapy was to help someone feel something or to get something moving so that they could move. The, the, always the thing is the movement. And if we don't consummate that idea of, hey, we're, we're, we're giving you some input so that you can feel the movement or change the movement, that's actually the model for strength and conditioning. I am teaching with skill or doing a skill transfer exercise or a position transfer exercise so that you can come back and you can snatch one. But we forgot that sort of second component to the reason we're doing manual therapy is not just for pain, it's so that someone can then feel something or move differently or have access and have some input that allows them to move differently. The other really huge important piece here is uh, the transparency. There's zero transparency in our field that you don't actually know how phys physios don't actually demonstrate how they practice. And, uh, you know, so you'll see that people on the internet just slamming people with research that they did not create, that they're not part of, that they're actually not researchers, they're readers of researchers, and that they don't actually treat people, they don't work in settings, they don't show their work, but they are experts in how everyone else is treating and managing. So you can go ahead and just, you know, if you're not, if you're not, I just need to see what your, what your work is. So if you're, presenting yourself as a um as an expert in the field let's see what your results are and see where you were working because you know suddenly um it's really easy to throw poo at everyone and to swoop and poop but if you've never tried to work with 30 kids picking their nose or you're trying to untangle the problems of the entire nfl team or the you know the navy seals or you're not thinking at scale then and you don't know where you're putting this in look it always works to have one physio and one person, but there's not enough physios and there's not enough time and people can't come see you five days a week for two hours a time. So at some point um, we need to be a lot more um, transparent in our modeling because I see a lot of experts who don't actually work with people, but man, they are, it's so good at, at taking everyone else down. You know, meanwhile, <laughs> again, I don't know how you move. I don't know how you're coaching. I don't know what your results are. I don't know what your failed physical therapy outcomes look like. You know, you treating someone in your side office off your house does not make you an expert in physical therapy. No, for sure. And I think that um, argument really speaks to the importance of things like case studies and case reviews, which are collections of case studies, uh, because this is real life, real world patient cases. This is what someone did. This is the outcome. And in research, we have total control over every aspect, right? We can control the patient's age. We can control the condition. We can control comorbidities. You and I both know that a patient will never walk into our clinic with just like this condition or just this problem. There's always a lot more going on. You know, it's not just that we have shoulder impingement. Yeah. It's we have shoulder impingement. That's right. Some, 
someone who just lost, you know, a hundred pounds and they're still 200 pounds overweight, you know? So it's looking at that whole picture and realizing that we can't apply basic research that doesn't even consider those things in the studies to that specific patient. We have to kind of look and, and beyond. Absolutely. And so let's just say that, hey, um, the human brain is the most sophisticated structure in the universe. It's attached to a physiology that's equally as complex in a environmental system that is rapidly changing. And, you know, and you think that you're going to apply some RCT study to that? It's dirty data. And, you know, most of the research is done on what, kids 18 to 22 in a college setting, you know, that are men, that aren't even women. And what you understand is that every single time you are working with a patient is a hypothesis and a test and a retest. You're making, applying your logic and thinking and critical thinking to every single session. And by the way, that's what happens every single time we train in the gym. Here's my hypothesis that you're gonna be able to front squat this load at five by five because this is a position. And then I'm going to test that hypothesis and your recovery and, and then, see the results of that. So, you know, it, it, of course, research is important, but that subjectiveness is going to be, it's going to be a lot more subjective research. It's going to be also, we just can't control those, you know, Nordic hamstrings cure everything. Oh, really? You know, well, you know, let, let's, let's really make sure that we understand all the things that we're, we're doing here. And again, suddenly you're back in and you need, unless you can ex take your research and apply it to what's going on in sport and how we're actually training the fastest people in the world, it's less interesting. And it doesn't mean that the people training the fastest runners in the world are doing it the best, but we need to really struggle with that integration because the research doesn't tell me how to treat a person in the body. It doesn't tell me how to coach. It doesn't tell me how to you know, address their psycho-emotional components. It doesn't tell me how to help them downregulate or de-stress. It doesn't tell me, you know, so I'm, I'm arguing for the expansion of physio. If, you know, in California right now, you know, we're still arguing things like I can't do dry needling, right? Because, I, because the dry needling people in California are like, nope, physios can't dry needle. I'm like, that's fine. That's just a technique. But now you're also telling me I can't talk to someone about the kinds of foods they should eat. So What's not important to physio is the tissue quality of the things or managing that tissue quality. Well, I can't talk to you about your drinking and your lack of sleep and your inflammation and your, right? Like at some point, I'm gonna need you more responsible for the whole thing. And I'm gonna need to be better educated as a physio coach, physio life coach. You know, I think the problem is physio should be a way of thinking not an end-all be-all. So I, I have a way of thinking about how the human moves and interacts with the environment. You know, if I'm doing cardiac rehab in a hospital, my, my thinking looks a little bit different than how do I return this person to, you know, be able to play basketball effectively in the NBA, right? And, that, and that's okay that we can have that whole spectrum of care and what we should be looking at are where these, you know, these interferences, you know, or where the overlaps are. But if you're not in our communities of high performance, I'm not sure you have a lot to say about those communities of high performance. And again, we're looking for that through narrative so that I can understand that the thing I'm teaching or the thing I'm working with kids is gonna scale all the way up. Yeah, for sure. I love that point about high performance as well because when you're working with athletes or in a sports setting, like this is not meant for 
every single person with a PT license. For example, if I have a friend who specializes in neuro rehab and they're very good at getting people back on their feet post-stroke or post-spinal cord injury, that's great. I don't speak that language myself. Neuro goes right over my head for the most part. So if we start to specialize and keep everyone in their specialties that they're best at treating, then we get better outcomes. So I, I already said, I would not feel comfortable myself treating someone like you know two days post-stroke, three days post-stroke. And I wouldn't expect the person who's the best at treating someone post-stroke to feel comfortable managing an ACL uh, rehab process from day that's one okay. to yes. 10 month. But just to kind of put a cap on this, uh, Dr. Sturett, it's been an awesome show. We've talked about a lot of amazing points about physical therapy and strength and conditioning and the future of just health and fitness in general. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts or closing remarks you really want people to take home? If you are a physio, you know, I was asked to give a talk at the Graham sessions this year. Steve Anderson's a friend. And um, I got COVID and wasn't able to attend. But what I was going to talk about is we have a landslide of behavioral health issues coming towards us, public health disease, obesity, diabetes, sedentariness, and our profession is poorly prepared to help handle that or take that on. And we're gonna end up with trying to treat artifacts of these gigantic behavioral dysfunctions and sort of environment organism mismatches I think we're a field that could be really well prepared to actually come in and try to do some lifting and some education here, but we're not prepared to be able to talk about some of the behavioral interventions. What we're going to see is continue to treat this, the symptoms, you know, we're going to see more back pain and we're going to see a lot more dysfunction and, you know, we're going to see a lot more arthritis. Why? Because you know, we're not moving and we are getting fatter and we're moving less and we're being more diabetic. And if we are going to be musculoskeletal experts, we're going to need to expand our roles into public health to be able to advocate for people changing their behaviors in the environment. Otherwise, it's a perfect business model for us. This is sit back and we'll just keep treating all of the error messages that keep, keep setting up. But if we're truly going to be about musculoskeletal promise and health and durability, then we're going to have to get on the other side of the reaction curve. We can't just wait around until the body has these problems, you know, and be like, well, you know, you've just created a gigantic bone spur. Sorry, maybe if we'd started this 20 years earlier, we could have done, you know, whatever it is at some point, it would be nice to be on the other side of that, which means we're going to have to be much more engaged in public health at high school, middle school, elementary school sort of interventions and continue to really advocate for people against the onslaught of industrialized food, industrialized entertainment, uh, you know, and, you know, if we don't do it, no one's going to do it. No, you're absolutely right. And this is a problem that I don't know is not a acceptable answer for, right? If you yourself as a PT cannot keep your own self healthy and in good movement patterns, then how can you expect to get your patients back to that point? If you yourself can't answer basic questions uh, relating to things like hydration, nutrition, and sleep, then how are you going to uh, improve your patient's health with those things? You don't have to be an expert. You don't have to know every single thing, but know enough. No, no. Know enough where if you're given basic questions, you can answer them and direct the person in the right way. 
you know, we are last, I'll say that, you know, we've gotten to a place where that if I'm working with someone with persistent pain or chronic pain or with someone who's trying to go fast, I need to see their sleep. And I, I don't believe them because I believe that their self-reported sleep is, is crap. So I'm going to need to see your sleep data so that I can actually understand what's going on. Because if I start building assumptions on foundational thinking, that's a type one error right? That, mm -hmm. you know, misplaced type one. And that is so much of what we're doing as a profession is that we're making decisions based on really poor behavioral health. And the problem is we're not in a position to really help people with their behavioral health yet. For sure. But one day at a time, as we continue to grow and push for further involvement of the profession in a more primary care type role, we may one yes. day see ourselves there. So... Dr. Storette, this has been an amazing conversation. Really appreciate your time. For those listening, if you haven't checked out Supple Leopard Books, Deskbound, or The Ready State, which is Dr. Storette's current movement and mobility company, they have all kinds of different courses, which can benefit both the individual athlete and the healthcare provider. And they have a variety of other coaching options, a online store, and so many books. Uh, they also have their own podcast, the Ready State Podcast. We'll link to all of that below. So if you haven't checked that out yet, be sure to do so. Dr. Sturette, thank you again. Thank you so much.